0: Live from New York, I'm Richard Quest. Julia is off today for Memorial Day. This is First Move, and here's You Need to Know. On a road to recovery, the OECD is lifting its forecast and is warning of uneven growth. There's a population push in China as the country announces a three-child policy to boost the birth rate. And the Olympic arrivals, the first team of athletes, are heading to Tokyo for the Games. It is Monday, start of a new week. Let's make a move. A very warm welcome to First Move. U.S. markets are closed today. It is Monday. It's Memorial Day, uh, the start of the summer holiday season, well, at least in the United States. It's a long bank holiday weekend in the UK too. start of the summer there as well. Europe, though, which is trading and doing business, you've got four markets there to whet your appetite, three down and one up on the last trading day of the month. And that's on set and tracking to rise for a fourth straight month overall, even though there are some small losses for today. The biggest test for global markets this week comes on Friday. The U.S. releases its May jobs numbers, and the investors are hoping to see an improvement in hiring after that disappointing number that we saw in April. In Asia today, mostly higher. Japan fell after weaker-than-expected factory and retail sales numbers and a lacklustre report on the Chinese factory activity on hiring too. Consequently, of all the major markets in Asia, the Nikkei was the only one down. And so, our dear friend Bitcoin, it is above 37,000 again, but it is still heading for its worst month in a decade. Actually, it's down under 36. Well, you get the idea. It's bouncing around at the moment. So even a two, two and a half percent gain hasn't managed to get it over 37,000. And the reason of the weakness or the continuing weakness is there are hints that the U.S. government is to beef up its crypto oversight. We will talk crypto later in the program. And so straight to our drivers. The OECD says global economic output is close to its pre-pandemic levels. It's nudging 2021 growth forecasts up to 5.8 percent, and it's crediting robust U.S. stimulus and widening vaccine rollouts. There are lots of frictions that remain, which is the warning. Anna Stewart is here. The OECD's positive gain, if you like, showing that things are getting better, is borne out by others, the World Bank and the IMF. I think I'm more interested not in the growth, but in those frictions ahead.
1: Uh, and there always are frictions, Richard, and of course any recovery was not going to really be equal, but this one looks particularly patchy. I'll bring you the chart of growth. You can see China absolutely roaring ahead, its economy rebounding much faster than the pre-pandemic levels. The US just touching pre-pandemic levels, largely on the back of stimulus and the vaccine rollout. And then Europe really lagging behind. And this is where the interesting point comes. So much being put on this forecast revision being based on the vaccine rollout. The OECD is saying that, of course, economies are able to reopen are returning to some sort of normal level of activity, but also pent up consumer spending. That's where we see a little bit of inflation coming in as well. But the bad news from this, despite the global growth picture looking good, is so many economies are slowing until the vaccine is, of course, equitably rolled out, which won't likely happen. You're not going to see equal economic growth or recovery. Richard.
0: So what is the concern here? Um, Because in the United States, there is a concern of inflation. The EU is finally getting its, um, if you like, its, its, its vaccination policy together and moving forward quite quickly now. So the biggest concern for OECD countries, which is essentially the wealthy countries of the world, is what?
1: Well, if we look at the G20, it actually depends. I mean, some nations very worried about inflation. You mentioned the US. The OECD in this forecast, not actually that concerned when it comes to inflation. They see this as a natural reaction really to economies opening up and all that consumer spending, uh, blockages in the trade system are expected to ease. In Europe, part of the problem is of course, the slower vaccine rollout. We're seeing that uh, very much in those numbers, but also Richard, some of the nations which are so much more reliant on tourism, and when's tourism going to return to any kind of normal? Also, some of the nations, particularly in the south, companies which needed help were given uh, loans rather than grants. They may be extra burdened. and they may stru- struggle uh, in the recovery in the year to come. Uh, so a bit of a mixed picture. But the overall message from the OCD, very much about the rollout of the vaccine.
0: Gorgeous weather where you are and, and where are you? <laughs>
1: The economy is ticking along nicely around here, Richard. Everyone is outside in the pub. It's finally, I think, sunshine and summer.
0: absolutely beautiful. Anna Stewart in London. Thank you. Now, China's announcing a new three-child policy, a major shift for the world's most populous country. Uh, the government there is looking to combat the effects of ageing population. David Culver is with me from Beijing. So, for decades, one child. Then you go to two Uh, I'm interested that they actually put a number on it. Uh, They actually say three and don't just say have as many as you like.
2: Yeah, they're capping this, Richard, but they also expect this to lead to a baby boom, as they thought when they changed it from one child to two back in 2016. However, it didn't result in that. In fact, it continued to decline. And so now here we are in a situation where China is really at a a dire situation for its aging population, because what you have is this decline in birth rate, add to that this increase in life expectancy, and you've got a workforce here that is youthful, is young, but likewise is aging out. And so they're not sure how they can sustain it long term. I think the other thing you have to separate from all of this is this is not just about the economy and prosperity, which are two very important things here in China, because both of those are rooted in social stability here. So if you don't have that prosperity factor, social stability could falter. And the government, the central government at that, certainly sees that. I think the other thing that is very interesting to note is the timing of this, Richard. This came weeks after the 2020 census showed the slowest growth in decades here in China. But it also comes as an announcement from the top leadership of the party outside of a national gathering, the National People's Congress in particular. That's generally when you have some of these major announcements being put forth. Instead, this comes weeks after the census. It shows that it is something that is immediately needed to be handled, that it was urgent. And that's why it's come from the top here. The question is, is it really going to have a substantive impact? Is it going to encourage people to have children? That remains to be seen. There are realities on the ground here, Richard. This is an advanced society that is becoming increasingly expensive to live in. Families are looking at that. Moms and dads are starting to see the housing costs, the education costs, general cost of living going up. And so to balance those demands and the thought of having more children, well, for them, it's about maintaining a certain lifestyle, too. And so it, it is a, a challenging trade-off, and it's not one that's likely to be resolved easily here, Richard.
0: David Culva in Beijing. Thank you. The first Olympic athletes are making their way to Japan for the Tokyo Summer Games. The Australian women's softball team are on their way as the country remains under a state of emergency because of COVID-19. Blake Essigs in uh, Tokyo. Uh, Just clarify one point. The fact that the the fact that teams are now arriving, does that mean that questions about the future of these games are now off the table?
3: You know, Richard, after several weeks of what seems like endless criticism and calls from Japan's general population, doctors groups, and even an Olympic sponsor for the Olympics to be canceled, uh, earlier today, we were offered the clearest sign yet that these games are likely going ahead as scheduled, just like the IOC and local organizers have been saying for months. Now, the Australian softball team boarded a plane in Sydney uh, on its way here to Tokyo. Once they arrive, they'll be the first international. National Olympic team to enter the country other than the track and field team from South Sudan, who have been here training since before the pandemic even started. Now, the team from Australia will be staying and training in Ota City, which is located just outside of Tokyo for about six weeks, as part of a host town initiative. Now, during that time, the team will only be allowed to move in between their hotel and training field. And because of the COVID-19 pandemic, this team hasn't played together since 2019. Now, despite admitting to a little trepidation before heading to Japan, Players say that they have no problem with the rules and regulations put in place, knowing that sacrifices must be made for the opportunity to compete.
4: we have going to go through lots and lots of COVID testing. um, But look, we're all prepared for it. We want to do everything that we can um, to make sure that we're safe when we get there and we're safe while we're in Japan as well.
0: All right. So, Blake, we're just at the beginning of uh, of June, give or take. And uh, one imagines teams will now be arriving, more teams, uh, the the, the pickup will, will, will begin. There will come a point, won't there, when it is simply not possible to even consider cancelling these games.
3: Yeah, Richard, I mean, I mean, look, when you look at what's at stake here, uh, specifically the financial, uh, you know, the, the monetary value of everything, uh, you know, for the IOC, uh, television rights, uh, Tokyo and Japan as a whole, it seems unlikely that these games are going to be canceled. Uh, that being said, 78 out of 528 out of these towns um, and Olympic teams have, that were scheduled to participate in these host town programs have pulled out citing the COVID-19 concerns. Uh, there's lots of talks about uh, 80% of the people that will be in the Olympic Village being vaccinated, but that doesn't take into account the 78,000 foreign delegates that will be coming to Japan, where they'll be staying and whether or not they'll be vaccinated. Uh, We just don't know those answers yet. So there are still a lot of questions to be answered. I I think that as we get closer, again, the calls uh, for these games to be canceled will continue to be voiced, but Given everything that the IOC has said to this point, uh, the Japanese government, local organizers, it seems like these games are moving forward uh, and beyond uh, just moving into the operational aspect of these games. You have, as, as we talked about, the uh, team from Australia uh, coming in to start training. Um, there's viewing what? sites that are starting to be built June 1st. So lots of movement here in Tokyo as we move towards these games.
0: Like in Tokyo, thank you. As in Our drivers of the day, and these are the stories making headlines around the world. Rivals of Israel's prime minister are trying to finalise their coalition deal that could oust Benjamin Netanyahu from power a day after the right-wing politician Naftali Bennett said he would join a unity government to prevent another round of elections. They've only a few days to hammer out this agreement. Hadass Gold uh, joins me. Can they do it? Is this the end of Netanyahu's dozen years in power?
5: Well, with Netanyahu, Richard, you can never say never. (laughs) He is definitely a political survivor in Israeli politics. However, there is a feeling here that that Israel may be days away from seeing the end of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as Prime Minister. Perhaps he will then become the opposition leader. Uh, Last night, Naftali Bennett, actually a former Netanyahu aide and and lieutenant, a former ally of his, announced that his small right-wing party, Yamina, will be uh, joining this potential new unity government, this new coalition that is being spearheaded by the centrist leader Yair Lapid. Now, it is widely understood as part of this coalition agreement that Naftali Bennett will actually become prime minister first, followed by Yair Lapid as part of a rotating leadership deal. Now, this coalition, if it comes to fruition, will be made up of a wide swath of political parties from the left all the way through the center to the right, and would likely need the outside support of a small Islamist party called the United Arab List. And they will have a lot of different views across the ideological spectrum, but the one thing that is uniting all of these parties is their desire to oust Prime Minister Netanyahu. Now, Naftali Bennett said in his speech last night, a televised address, that he was willing to sit with people that were opposite the ideological spectrum says, in order to avoid sending Israelis to a fifth election. Netanyahu in his own speech lashed out at Bennett saying that he was committing the fraud of the century, saying that this new government would be lefting, left-wing, would be a danger to Israeli security. But so far the talks seem to be ongoing, but there are still a few days, a few more obstacles before this government can be sworn in. The final coalition agreements have to be formally signed before they can be presented to the Israeli president. Then the Israeli parliament, the, the Knesset, has to actually vote on this new government before the government could be sworn in. And this coalition has a pretty thin margin, so a couple defections could com- could cause this entire coalition to crumble. And as with everything in Israeli politics, things can change very quickly, but we may be heading towards the final days of Benjamin Netanyahu as Israel's longest serving prime minister. Richard. All
0: right, we'll leave it there. Had gold, thank you. Please Nigeria state of Niger say gunmen on motorcycles abducted a number of children from an Islamic school on Sunday. They said the attackers shot one person dead, the latest in a string of mass kidnappings in Nigeria. And the authorities say they're still trying to ascertain exactly how many students were taken. On Sunday, President Biden paid tribute to Americans who have died serving in the military, delivering remarks during a Memorial Day service at a Veterans Memorial Park in Delaware. The president spoke about his son, Beau, a veteran who died six years ago of brain cancer. He urged Americans to remember those members of the, of the armed services who had fallen.
6: We must remember the price that was paid for our liberties. We must remember the debt we owe those who have paid it, the families left behind. My heart is torn in half by the grief the communities would never whole again.
0: The UK has reported more than 3,000 new cases of uh, COVID coronavirus for the fifth straight day. The variant first detected in India is driving the increase. Some European countries have now reimposed restrictions on travellers from Britain. Bianca Nobilo is with me uh, from London. Um, this rise of th- to 3,000, is it, is it sufficiently worrying that it calls into question any part of the reopening?
4: scientists have been saying today that the country's on a knife edge it could go either way frankly that's the situation that we're in last week the government was saying that there's no data to suggest that the 21st of june date to relax all restrictions would be in jeopardy but this week things look a little more precarious richard as you mentioned a 25 percent increase of cases over the last seven days so It's a critical moment. And as you know, it's bank holiday in England today and the weather's good for the first time in a month. So it's pretty bad timing when we want everybody to behave themselves.
0: Well, that's a good point. Um, We'll talk travel in just a second. I just want to know, what fallout has there been in Britain over the fairly devastating comments by Dominic Cummings (laughs) about the prime minister and his handling? I mean, in other times, this would have done him in but I sort of see they've all just disappeared off into the ether.
4: Yeah, it's peculiar. I mean, it was a seven-hour-long evisceration of the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary in particular. I think he came out of it worse, in fact. Boris Johnson's been referred to as Teflon before, and Dominic Cummings isn't exactly a figure that's trusted by the British public. In fact, as polls were showing, he's trusted about half as much as Boris Johnson – But some of what he said is sticking, particularly about the fact that the government had zero plan in the critical early stages of the pandemic and the fact that elderly people weren't protected. So it's Boris Johnson's approval ratings taken a hit if polls are anything to go by Richard.
0: And uh, you, you, we saw Anna Stewart enjoying some spectacularly good weather outside, uh, I think, about next to the river. And you're alluding to the fact that it's a bank holiday and it's uh-huh. a nice one. Actually, you're not alluding, you said straight out, it's a nice uh-huh. one and everybody's off. So there is a real feeling, isn't there, of a, of a summer to be enjoyed and rescued?
4: Yes, there is. And people don't want to lose that. But but also it's a a balance because this bank holiday, people have planned to see their family because some restrictions have been relaxed. But on the other hand, they're being cautioned by the government and scientists not to enjoy it too much. It is beautiful. And this was a concern throughout the pandemic that whenever there's good weather in Britain, people, uh, you know, according to the government, can't seem to control themselves and congregate en masse in ways that are very unhelpful in terms of virology. Um, and also because people can't look forward right. to holidays abroad like they ordinarily could. There are very few places that British people can plan to go to on holiday. And there's no real sense that even if they plan to go there now, that they'll still be able to go there in a couple of months time.
0: Bianca, thank you. You have neatly and nicely taken me on to Tom Jenkins, who is the chief executive of the European Tour Operators Association. Uh, Well, I mean, there are two competing things going on in Europe. There is a reopening both within the Schengen area or within the EU. And then there is the ability to attract third party or third country uh, visitors like the United States and uh, the UK where are we at the moment
7: well i mean we're in a we're in a um in a fog frankly um if i knew what was happening i'd be a much happier man than i am now notwithstanding the good weather that we're having I, I think um, uh, the, the first thing to point out is that uh, uh, we are Europe is, alas, at the moment, a set of independent sovereign states and they're acting as such. So um, uh, at very short notice, uh, Germany and France have closed their borders to English nationals. At the same time, of course, as England um, prevented their English nationals from returning from either France or Germany um uh without any quarantining they they have to quarantine up to two weeks so intra-european traffic certainly if if you're a non-eu member is is heavily restricted there's no way of getting around it
0: and how realistic is the green digital pass uh that the eu is putting forward it's i I understand i mean both from a practical standpoint well, i mean it's realistic
7: insofar far as this is happening um
0: Right, but can they get it up and running smoothly? Will the yeah, technology Richard, work? Bad
7: line. I, th- I think that the. I In think his... the technology will work. There's nothing right. much to this technology. What is what is what is what what, are, what are, the real issue is whether people suddenly feel that they need to introduce border controls as a result of variants, um, and they've got to have they've got to balance the need to introduce border controls as a result of variants with the enormous impact that the lack of tourism is having on their service economies. If we go back to the UK, which you you were talking about just now, um, the fact that there are no tourists, uh, foreign tourists coming into the UK is a savage blow to the service economy. If you look at somewhere like Oxford Street, Oxford Street relies for 50 percent of its turnover on foreign visitors. It will not have any foreign visitors until really uh, August, September at the earliest. So it's in a, in a really sticky position, as are most cities in Europe.
0: What is the solution here, bearing in mind the variants? There are the vaccinations. There is going to be the digital green pass. You will have IATA's travel pass, but maybe not just yet. Oh. You're, you know, you don't want more restrictions. So, so what is the solution?
7: I, you know, if I had a magic wand, I think you know the, the short answer is, is that um, all one can say is that this is not going to be a rapid return to normality. There was a school of thought that um, we would see a return, rather like the sun bursting out from behind a cloud at midday. I think the return to normality is going to be like a long, slow, gradual dawn. Um, what the how we can accelerate that? I just don't know. I think we can hope that um, governments start persuading their populations that banning inbound traffic is not the way forward but with um, public opinion strongly in favor of um, blocking foreigners from coming in even within europe uh, politicians are likely to lead where the sophologists tell them to go and i'm uh, i don't i i I don't i don't have much optimism for things returning before uh, september
0: You see, I'm going I'm I'm going on assignment on Friday to Croatia and I can tell you just to do the transfer on the way out London and then come back via Frankfurt. And first of all, there aren't that many flights to begin with. And secondly, the logistical problems. It's very difficult now, isn't it, to travel and it's not going to get much easier.
7: Well, I think it will get easier. The answer is this will be over. And when it's over, it's going to be a great time to travel to Europe. Um, You know, there's no one you will be guaranteed of a welcome. um, And secondly, um, and secondly, there's no problem with space and overcrowding at the moment. Uh, Over tourism was last year's story.
0: Well, you wait. Right, you wait, Tom. You wait. It'll be twenty twenty two story. Please, God. All right, Tom. We'd love you to talk to you, as always. I'm grateful for your time. Hello, Thank you. A lot. Bye bye. Now, the stock markets in Europe, they are, they, well, the countries may be closed, but the markets are open, or at least some of them are, and they are mixed, which is a bit like the travel experience you'll have. Uh, investors are digesting reports showing inflation quickening in several countries. It's an otherwise quiet day. Deutsche is weighing heavily on the Zetra DAX, and the Fed's expressed concerns about the German bank's anti money laundering practices. London's closed for a public bank holiday. U.S. equity markets are closed for Memorial Day. India has reported that its GDP rose are greater than 1.6 percent in Q1. Um, But let's take that with a hefty dose of salt because it's before the second wave of Covid infections really hit the country. I would be surprised to see that if that revision isn't a revised downwards and the next number truly reflects. As we continue, as it's next, it's fast, but no reason to be furious. Lamborghini says one of its best years, despite the challenges of the pandemic. Chief executive on going electric: Can you get the roar and the pop with a electric or a hybrid Lamborghini? It's a question we're all asking after the break. The pandemic has dented the prospects of countless businesses. It's not necessarily the case in the case of luxury cars. Lamborghini says it has had its most profitable year in 2020, the second best in sales in the brand's history. And the company is now pushing ahead with plans to make every model. It offers a plug-in hybrid by 2024. The CEO, is Stephen Winkleman, he joins me now. Um, uh, This is really interesting, isn't it, that the across the board we are seeing luxury items luxury sales luxury cars luxury goods having extremely good years because those people with money still have it and have and have had to you know not as many things to spend it on during the pandemic
6: yes somehow they had time enough to think about what is next so um, in these times where we had the, the shutdown, people are reflecting about themselves, about their lives. Uh, the stock market is one of the things which was an indicator. It was uh, pretty fast uh, back up, and uh, this was also happening uh, to us. And it would have been a record year if we would not have, let's say, the shutdown in the months of March and April, because this was also due to our um, Dealers, which were shutting down, and uh, our partners. So as soon as this was back uh, open, we had uh, a boom of uh, order uh, coming in. And also today, by the end of May, we have a rock solid uh, order bank, which is covering uh, almost 10 months of uh, sales. Wow.
0: The hybrid car, the plug-in hybrid, the batteries on are- that today's batteries aren't large enough or powerful enough, in a sense, for, your, for, for, for the performance that you wish. Uh, is a Lamborghini, is a hybrid Lamborghini going to be a less than satisfying? Are you doing it as a compromise because it's something you have to do by regulation?
6: No, we would never compromise. We would look for a different solution if we would uh, go for a compromise. What we're doing uh, with the hybridization, and this is actually a plug-in hybridization of our cars from 2023 to 2024, is something which is, yes, reducing emissions, but it's also increasing performance. And these two things have to work together, and we are watching very carefully that our future cars will be more performing, will be still... Uh, fulfilling the dreams of our customers. And I can tell you that the first plug-in hybrid which we are going to launch, which will be the follower of our Aventador, so our V12 engine car, will still have a a uh, 12-cylinder engine. And this is something which uh, we are very proud of, and uh, we will have a car which is uh, combining a lot of emotion uh, with less uh, CO2 emissions.
0: But is it trying to do... Uh, the impossible, is it trying to, or square the circle, whatever analogy you you, you want to do, uh, to to make, to to get a car that is is the definition of high performance and shove it into the category of hybrid?
6: No, I don't think so, because the technology uh, is up to a point... Uh, where we can say, when we arrive, uh, there was no need to be the first one doing something like this. But when we go, we have to be the best. And this is the commitment we are taking. And uh, the combination of, uh, let's say, a a battery and uh, an internal combustion engine can work, and we will prove it. Now, let's say, to speak about it without driving the car is uh, not making a lot of sense. But trust me, we are very careful with our DNA, uh, with our customers, with our fans, and we will be extra careful in doing uh, the right thing.
0: Uh, VW had to claim, ha- had to admit, or had to clarify, I should say, that they there's no intention to sell Lamborghini. No, th- these rumours come out periodically. They get slapped down. I wonder whether coming out of pandemic... Uh, there's something more here. Can you assure us you're not for sale?
6: But, you know, this is not up to me. I'm the CEO of the company. I'm not the owner. But uh, there was a clear statement, and I trust that this this statement is the right one.
0: And as CEO, you've sort of regained responsibilities uh, specifically for Lamborghini. Um, When you came back in December... Um, what did you find? I mean, you found a company that was exceptionally successful, no question about it. What tweaks to that company do you now need to do to take it to the next level?
6: Now, you know, when I first joined the company, we were a two model company. It was in 2005. We were selling approximately 1,600 cars. And at that time, we said we are too much exposed uh, to. Uh, um, economic crisis which might come up, and we need something to stabilize uh, the company for the future. So our idea was a third model, which was not a typical uh, super sports car, because also the history of Lamborghini is not only about super sports cars, but it has a variety of cars which were not in only in this niche. So when um, the Uru saw our SUV, our super sports car SUV came out, uh, it was the right move, and the success we're having also today is uh, let's say the proof that we are ready now for the for the second uh, step and the second step for sure is to uh, go into the hybridization plug in hybridization by maintaining uh, the DNA of the brand and then maybe down the road in the second half of this decade so between 25 and 30 also also do a step further
0: Right. And and I I gather from that, because there is that, it is a hybrid, a plug-in hybrid, the question, uh, reading the various message boards and and, uh, reviews and all of those things, people always say the hybridization, will the engine still have a roar and a pop uh, when you drive it? And judging by your smile, I'm guessing the answer to that is an affirmative yes.
6: Yeah, for sure. For sure. If you have a V12, You will have the roar and you will have the pop, as you are uh, saying it, and you will have the sound, which uh, our customers (laughs) and our fans love.
0: Sir, it is a treat and a pleasure to have you on our programme today. I'm grateful. Thank you, sir. Now, as we continue today, the theory that the current virus originated in a lab is becoming more mainstream. The why's and the origins of the pandemic is crucial because, of course, we want to prevent another one.
3: That's right. These kinds of lab leaks happen all the time, uh, actually. Even here in the United States, we've had mishaps. And in China, the last six known outbreaks of SARS 1 have been out of labs, including the last known outbreak, which was a pretty um, extensive outbreak that China initially wouldn't disclose that it came out of labs.
0: That's the former U.S. Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb speaking on CBS on the theory that the virus that causes COVID-19 may have originated in that Wuhan lab. Questions about the origin have put the World Health Organization under further pressure, and the agencies agreed today to study independent recommendations to reform. My next guest says we will have COVID-26 and COVID-32 unless we understand how 19 came about. It is, of course, Dr. Peter Hotez, a Dean of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine with me from via Skype from Houston. Doctor, um, we need for my weekend reading. We need to know blood samples from those at the, the lab. We need to know what they were working on. We need to know the genetic makeup of everything there. We don't know those things. And the Chinese aren't going to tell us. Ergo, we'll never know.
8: Yeah, that's exactly right, Richard. You know, there's been a lot of talk about how we have to step up our intelligence and the Biden administration has uh, uh, asked for a new intelligence report. And my premise is, uh, you know, we've had intelligence all over this for the last uh, year and a half. Um, they've been doing everything we can from several thousand miles away, and and you can only get so far with that. Ultimately, we need to do what's called an outbreak investigation, which is to knowing that there's some evidence that COVID-19 may have actually started as early as late in the summer of of 2019. We need to send a team of qualified epidemiologists and virologists into Hubei province and, and collect virus and blood samples from from wild animals such as bats and domestic livestock and laboratory animals and people in the area, interview patients, interview the scientists. This is this is not a quick fix. This is a slow process that could take six months to a year. And the reason we need to know it Richard, is this is our third major coronavirus epidemic slash pandemic of the 21st century. We've had SARS in two, 2000, uh, 2003. We've had Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome in 2012. That's why we started making coronavirus vaccines, because we said okay. it's only a matter of time before we have our third major coronavirus epidemic. And right on cue, COVID-19 hit. And we have every reason to believe, unless we can better understand the origins. And now two major coronavirus pandemics coming out of China we need to understand this mix that's going on in places like Hubei province where you have uh, a mixing bowl of uh, various livestock and ducks and and chickens and, right. and high density populations. This is why we see regular influenza viruses arise out of China as well.
0: So, so uh, since we are unlikely to get that information and the WHO did send a team in and their report, uh, which said we, it can't be proven, one way or the other. The WHO's re- own reputation is on the line here, isn't it? Because the more evidence that suggests it might have been something untoward, and they come out sort of saying, we don't think it is untoward.
8: Yeah. And and the the point is, we have to do this, because, and the world needs to demand it. Because if we don't understand... Uh, how covid-19 uh, first originated and and i think the more it's probably more likely that it is natural origins than the lab leak we're destined to repeat this and this and we're destined to repeat right. horrific tragedies so i think that we have to, i think there is a way to convince the chinese to to allow a team of scientists in what the who did was send the team in to interview individuals it was not an in-depth investigation and chinese scientists could participate in in the collection of samples and and their input's going to be very important as well And we need to look at this as an international uh, resource that that has to get done.
0: Since geopolitical considerations, things may not go as well as we'd hoped and the Chinese may not cooperate. At the same time, do we not also need to put in place better protections globally, which will be on a national basis, frankly, That when COVID-20, COVID-23, COVID-27 or whatever it is comes along, we are we are more prepared and take action quicker.
8: Yeah, and in fact, this is what happens after every major pandemic. We do get a little bit better. So after SARS in 2002, 2003, we implemented international health regulations, IHR 2005. After H1N1 pandemic flu in, in 2009, we implemented the Global Health Security Agenda. Then SEPI after the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation after Ebola in 2014. So we. it's not that we don't learn things. Just now this is the, the mother load of all pandemics now we've really got to add an extra infrastructure but remember international uh, governance will also only take us so far let's look at the the places where the most people lost their lives from covid-19 it's the united states it's brazil it's india and arguably russia although russia's is terribly undercounting uh, a lot of this was internal failings by leaders who denied the severity of the of the epidemic and tried to obfuscate and and, uh, right. and refuse to take action. So even the best international governance mechanisms is not going to be a substitute for leadership at the national level. Um, there is a, and I asked this question, bearing in mind it's a UK
0: bank holiday, it's Memorial Day, it is to, to a large extent the sort of the kickoff of the summer. There's a feeling that things are almost over, I, out and about in this country over the weekend, there's just about every, people think it's a, it's all done and dusted. And yet you've got India, which is still in trouble. You've got Latin America, Central America and ASEAN which, in Asia, which is in a dreadful state. We are heading to a bipolar world in the world of COVID.
8: Yeah, we are. And, we're, and quite honestly, we're even headed towards a, a bipolar United States because, you know, while everyone is being self-congratulatory, the truth is our vaccination rates in the southern U.S. are at half of what they are in the north. And remember, this time last year, we were at our nadir and our epidemic, then we had that horrible surge over the summer. So we're not out of this yet in terms of the southern states that are so underachieving so profoundly in terms of vaccination, number one, and number two. Um, the rest of the world is not in good shape. As you as you rightly point out, Latin America is, is having this steep acceleration right now. The fastest growing COVID uh, epidemics are occurring in places like Colombia and other Latin American countries. And India is still in uh, terrible shape. And we're just holding our breath, waiting for Africa. So we're doing very poorly in terms of vaccinating the world. And we need uh, the Biden administration have a greater role in actually scaling up producing vaccines. We need 6 billion doses of vaccines. So we're not even close to that yet.
0: Peter, it's always good to talk to you, uh, even in such difficult circumstances. Uh, sir, allow me to wish you a good Memorial Day, um, uh, as best we all can in the circumstances we face. Thank you, sir. Now, you. To, to Brazil, where protesters have taken to the streets over President Bolsonaro's handling of the pandemic. <laughs> Tens of thousands of people marched across the country over the weekend. They're demanding better access to vaccines. COVID-19 has been raging out of control there, and Brazil's reported more than 43,000 new cases on Sunday alone. The death toll is above 460,000. CNN's Rafael Romo
9: has more. uh, um. Screaming at the top of their lungs, people on the streets say the leader of their country must go. It was just one of the massive multi-city protests held across Brazil this weekend against President Jair Bolsonaro. Um, It's our duty to fight for democracy, this protester says. This government is no use to us, it doesn't serve the people, and its political project is to kill us. The demonstrations against Bolsonaro in cities like Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo and Brasilia were some of the largest since the beginning of the pandemic. Demonstrators had two main demands, calling for the president's impeachment and getting better access to COVID-19 vaccines. Impeachment now, Bolsonaro must go, this protester said, adding that more people will die if he stays in power. Early in the pandemic, the controversial right-wing former military officer downplayed COVID-19 as a gripezinha, a little flu. The president also questioned the effectiveness of vaccines and was often seen greeting crowds of supporters without a mask before contracting the virus himself. Brazil has been one of the hardest hit countries in the world and is now facing a possible third wave of COVID-19. Vaccination has been slow. Less than 10% of its total population of 210 million is fully inoculated and the South American country currently has the third highest number of infections after the United States and in India. Some protesters say Bolsonaro's lack of action is tantamount to genocide. Cemeteries are full. Refrigerators empty this banner reads. The Brazilian Senate has opened an investigation into the president's handling of the pandemic. The protests happened only a week after a maskless Bolsonaro led a motorcycle rally where he once again questioned the usefulness of measures to prevent the spread of COVID 19. Rafael Romo, CNN.
0: As you and I continue this Monday, Bitcoin's heading for its worst month in almost a decade. Investors are fearing new U.S. regulation after China's sweeping crypto crackdown. One of the volatile months in the history of Bitcoin is drawing to a close. The most widely held cryptocurrency is a tad higher today, 2.5%, but still under 37,000 after a weekend plunge. A top U.S. currency officials hinting that tighter crypto regulation is on its way. Claire Sebastian is with me. If we if we take uh, the the, the fact that the the, the 60,000 was an aberration, how much of the true price we're seeing now is because of fear of greater regulation?
10: Richard, I'd say a good amount. This has been a fear of regulation from China last week. We saw a real step up in in Chinese rhetoric around this, the, the Vice Premier talking about cracking down uh, on trading and mining. And of course, between two thirds and about three quarters of all Bitcoin mining happens in China. So that was a big one. Now we're seeing more chatter from the US. This was an interview that the acting controller of the currency did with the Financial Times saying that the, 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 the banking agencies, the FDIC, uh, the OCC and the Federal Reserve are in To sort of create what he called a regulatory perimeter around cryptocurrencies. There's, There's a real sense that they're trying to sort of take control of this situation as it becomes more and more popular. So that was part of what led to the blip. Uh, over the weekend. But, but we've seen that the value come down off the back of regulation, but also the energy pressure, the pressure around the, the energy usage of Bitcoin that stemmed from the Elon Musk uh, flip-flop where he decided against uh, letting people pay for Teslas using Bitcoin. That pressure has really stepped up. That's behind some of these regulatory crackdowns. We saw Iran banning Bitcoin mining for four months last week because of concerns about blackouts. So it's, it's a combination of those two things. And of course, amplified by the leverage that's, that's in this market, people borrowing money to buy Bitcoin, Richard?
0: Well, enticed perhaps by things like Bitcoin sponsoring a race car, which debuted at the Indy 500 uh, this weekend, where we saw the car. Um, it's a strange one, isn't it? I mean, who, who's doing it, in a sense, with Bitcoin, since Bitcoin doesn't really exist as, an, as, a, as a solid organisation?
10: Yeah, this is, this is an interesting one. We are actually seeing a bit of a bit of crossover between sports and and Bitcoin. But this is a, a car that was entered into the Indy 500, which is one of the biggest events in motorsports. It was entered by Ed Carpenter Racing, which has a couple of cars in the race, and it was sponsored by Contributions from the Bitcoin community in partnership with a Bitcoin payments app called Strike. So so apparently people who who own Bitcoin, who are part of that community, uh, have contributed to this car, and that's how it ended up in the race. It was emblazoned with the logo. It was was driven by an up-and-coming driver. uh, And it came in eighth, Richard, so uh, not a bad showing. Number 21, by the way, that's the amount of total Bitcoins that can be mined. Don't forget the scarcity built into that network.
0: Claire Sebastian, thank you. Claire? U.S. markets are closed for Memorial Day. I will be back with Questweeds Business in a few hours from now. That's it for the moment. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next.
2: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you.